Well, good morning. I'm Joel, one of the pastors, and it is good to be with you. How many of you filled out a March Madness bracket? Raise your hand. How many of you wagered at least $1,000 on it? Just That was a test. That was a test. Um, yeah, so how many of you put either Michigan or Michigan State down to win it all? Raise your hand. Really? That's a lot. Like, that's aggressive. <laughs> I don't think that's being very objective. All right? And that's what, what ends up happening is, of course, we like this team, and so that's what we're going to put down. Uh, this this uh, March Madness has been interesting to me because you've got teams like, what is it, UC Irvine and uh, Purdue. Um, okay, yeah. Um, <laughs> and there's a couple of other teams as well. They've got some massive ball players. Like, if I didn't already know their name, I promise I would have told anybody they'd be Dutch because they're like 7'2. Seven three. Have you seen some of the photos out there? Like these are, I mean, really, really tall people. Um, may, maybe you can relate to this. I'll put it like this. I remember in my younger days, you know, people would alley oop me, and I would dunk it down on my kid's seventh seven footer. And like you, you know what I'm talking about though? That like, alley oop, and some guy comes up, they're going to grab the ball and just slam it in, and then the ball bounces off the rim and doesn't go in. You know what I'm talking about, right? I saw one thing on a, on a basketball game the other day. The guy comes up. He's gonna, the guy doesn't even jump. He's a seven-foot-two guy. He just goes, no. Like, just, <laughs> I'm like, really? Like, I come up to his navel, all right? So I look at it, and I was like, wow. Like, here are these guys. They're about to powerhouse it in. And then they get rejected and humiliated completely. That's what we get to talk about today. We get to talk about what it is to be just so full of yourself and like, hey, watch this, and then you get humiliated. We're doing it in the context of Daniel. So here we are in a series. Uh, series is Even If, right? We encourage you to go. You can read some amazing things on the boards out in the gathering area about even if. You can grab a bracelet that says even if because we want you to be reminded. Even if things get hard, I will be faithful to God. We learned that um, in the first several chapters of Daniel from, from Daniel himself, also from his friends uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And that was last week in Daniel chapter 3. Uh, those are the guys, if you weren't here, thrown into the fiery furnace and yet God delivered them. And they had already said to the king, even if God doesn't deliver us, we will not bow down and worship your God. And so this week, we get to jump in a little bit further and looking at Daniel chapter 4. And we only have a couple more weeks in Daniel, this week and two more, because then we're jumping into the new facility and a new series. Um, but we want to end this really well because there's some powerful messages here. Some powerful messaging that God is really communicating that he's wanting to make sure that we see. And so Daniel 4 is another dream. This is right after um, that fiery furnace episode. You would think that King Nebuchadnezzar is already a little bit humbled because he heated a furnace seven times hotter, threw some guys in there to make a point. Hey, you don't do what I say. This is what happens. And of course, what happens is God steps in. He intervenes and he rescues those people. Well, here, um, he has another dream. I say another dream because in Daniel 2, Daniel has already come into the picture. And not only did he interpret a dream in Daniel chapter 2, he had to tell him what the dream was first. And then 
He had to interpret it. And if he could not, he would have been torn from limb to limb. Daniel 4 comes into play now. And you have another just disturbing dream. And I want to give you a summary of the first 26, 27 verses. Because we can get lost in so many weeds on this. Um, but I want to make sure you, under, you need to know what this dream is really about. I might want to scribble down some stuff as I go, and I'm going to give you a, a brief summary of what's taking place here. This dream is, is really where the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, he sees this massive tree. This is a tree that is providing shelter to all the people, to all the animals, to all the birds of the air, that is providing food. It's providing security. Um, it's, it's providing fruit and shade and shelter, all of these different things. And so this massive tree is there, but then you have this watcher, which is an angel of God of sorts, right? Comes in and says, hey, this tree needs to be removed. This tree is going to be cut down. This tree is going to be destroyed. The angel says that it's going to be stripped of its leaves and its branches. It's going to be left as nothing but a stump. Nothing but a stump that has a band of iron and bronze on it. It's almost as though it's sealed off now, right? And he's saying, this is what it's going to become. So here's this tree you can imagine and picture a big tree in the middle of this huge, um, wonderful creation that is providing so much to the people and to the animals around it. And yet, in the dream, an angel comes and cuts it down and says, no more. And it's really clear that this tree symbolizes a human. In the dream, it's being referred to as he. And so we know this, that he should be bathed in dew and have his mind changed from that of a human into a beast and that he should walk through this for seven years, is what it tells us, seven times. And that means years here. And it's talking about how long that this person will have to be cut off, to be removed, and to have all of its branches and leaves and everything else destroyed. Well, of course, if you have that type of dream, it's a bit disturbing. And so Nebuchadnezzar calls Daniel back in. Remember Daniel chapter 2? He's already served a similar purpose. So Daniel enters the picture again in Daniel chapter 4 to interpret the dream, to let them know what this really means. And he obliges to do so, but as Daniel is speaking about it and, and, and interpreting it, he wishes the dream would have been for one of Nebuchadnezzar's enemies, but he knows it's not for one of Nebuchadnezzar's enemies, it's for Nebuchadnezzar. So again, you're dealing with this king who's pretty ruthless, pretty angry, pretty full of himself, who he knows that if you can't even interpret a dream properly, then you're torn limb to limb. Like those are words I don't forget. I know that was previous in the narrative, right? But if you've already come to me once and said, hey, by the way, if you can't do this well, I'm going to tear you from limb to limb. I'm not going to go away and be like, oh, he was just kidding. So when he's calling me back in to interpret another dream, you know that as, inter as he's interpreting this dream, he's thinking, oh, my goodness, what's going to happen here? Because I'm wishing that this dream, the interpretation of it, was really about one of his enemies, but it's not. It's about King Nebuchadnezzar. Here's the tree that's going to get cut down. And so Daniel explains all this to Nebuchadnezzar. And that being the king, he's the guy who's been responsible to make sure everybody has shelter, has food, has protection, right? But Nebuchadnezzar is about to be cut down to size. Uh, and, and, and in the end, he ends up going mad. He ends up for seven years, right? He is just 
living um, in a place that's out of his own mind. He even ends up eating like wild animals and eating the grass. So Daniel, being Daniel, advises him after this interpretation. He comes in and he says, hey, listen, can I encourage you (laughs) to to atone for your sins, to to call out to God in repentance, to to live a life that is more righteous, that is more in line with helping the oppressed. So you can jump down. You see that. So you have the dream in Daniel 4. Then you have the interpretation. And at the very end, in Daniel chapter 4, verse 27 and following, this is where you find some of that. I'll read it for you real quick. Daniel 4, 27 says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be accepted to you. He's like, please heed my words. That's what he's saying, all right? And he's, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. At least maybe if you do this, you can postpone all of this horrible stuff that's going to come. Well, there very quickly, um, story stops and then it jumps. Twelve months later. And what we see is this guy, in verse 30, 28, 29, 30, it says, all of this came upon Nebuchadnezzar, and then it says, at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof. Now, I'm going to stop there. At the end of 12 months. It's been a year since he's had this dream. The interpretation is there, and all of a sudden, we're going to end up seeing this huge shift. Now, know this. Nebuchadnezzar is incredibly prideful. He isn't, you're about to see how prideful he is. And guys, we're all at times prideful. Can we just acknowledge that? We're all prideful at times. Or we almost raise our kids to be prideful. Like they do anything at all. We're like, that was amazing. Like they'll show you a picture. You've done this before. I mean, I'm the only one who has not done this, but all of you have done this before, like where your kid draws a picture and you're like, wow, that's the best picture ever. And they walk away and you look at your spouse and you go, what is it? I can't believe you would parent in such a way as my kids sit on the front row. Right? We teach them at an early age, like you're the best, this is amazing, you're so great. Well, just take it to the extreme with Nebuchadnezzar. He is so full of himself, and he's so prideful. And that's what you're going to find here today. You're going to, I told you before, it's a guy who's coming up to dunk. He thinks he's just the best, and then he gets rejected, right? You're going to move in this story. You're going to see this guy move from pride to humiliation. He is the greatest king who's living at the time, and he's going to move from pride to humiliation to praise of God. That's the movement. That's the story. That's Daniel chapter 4. You need to know right now. He's going to go from pride to humiliation to praise of God. And it's this incredible journey that he ends up being on. Because I'm trying, I was trying to figure out, how am, I, how am I going to preach all of this in one week? Well, the story is simple. This guy who is incredibly prideful was humiliated and he moved to praise of God. It's this journey that he was on. But we know that every person needs to walk this journey themselves. In Matthew 18, 4, 
It tells us, therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's talking about humility. It's talking about taking a low position. And yet what we find is someone who has taken a very high position of themselves. And so they have a dream that God gives to them. It's interpreted in which he knows that he's going to be cut down to size. He thinks he's the best. He thinks he's the greatest. And he needs to be not only humbled, but humiliated. And this has been the case since the very beginning, guys. This is Adam and Eve stuff. Where all of a sudden, sin jumps into the picture. Right? The essence of the very first sin is simple. The essence of the very first sin is this abandonment of having a, a childlike dependence on God. And when we move to having a godlike dependence on self. You hear this? That's what it was. And man, oh man, did, did King Nebuchadnezzar really love himself? And man, did he find dependence in his own might and in his own strength. And so what we learn here is that we are to move from godlike dependence on self to childlike dependence on God. That's the goal. We're to move from, man, I am amazing, to, man, do I need God. And so here we are in the early parts of the 500s before Christ. Jews have been taken into captivity. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, some of those who have been taken into exile. King Nebuchadnezzar is this great ruler king, and he knows it, and his heart is full of pride. And so as a result of that pride, everything begins to collapse. And you see it. In Daniel 4, 30 through 33. Now, before I get there, I want to share a few more things with you about this pride. And, and I'm reversing it a little bit today. I'm wanting to share with you about this pride because when we then read the scripture, I want you to be able to resonate with it more and click with it. The king jumps in in verse 30 and he says, Is, this, is, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? What he said is, what, what, what we find is Nebuchadnezzar going, look what I did. I'm awesome. He's, he's walking around on the top of his royal palace, and he takes a look, and he says, man, am I amazing. And we're all that way. Like, we all have moments, and it's okay to sometimes feel good about what you do. I just do it on a much smaller scale. I'll paint a wall, and I have my family come in, and I'm like, grab some chairs, and we just stare at it. Look what I did. And then, of course, my kids, me and my kids, they're like, oh, you missed a spot. But I'm like, look what I did. And that's where we find King Nebuchadnezzar. He's on top, and he's looking around at this empire that he has, and he's like, look at what I did. Man, I am so cool. And as soon as he says it, God intervenes. And he says, what are you doing? 
And here's the reason we're going to find God intervening and jumping into the picture is because of the pride that he was living. Let me give you a couple ways to measure pride. I want to give you two things. If this, if anything, I know I've already given you a lot of notes there in the worship guide, but if you want to write anything down, write this down. I want you to, in every part of your life, I want you to look at two different things. Who and who. Who and who. W-H-O, two times. Who and who. Who do you believe has accomplished what you have in your life and who has it been done for? Because what he just said is, I'm the one who did it. (laughs) I'm the one who accomplished it and I did it for me. That's That's what he says in the scriptures. He says, listen, I have built this with my mighty power and I've built it for me. So not only does he claim all of the glory for what has been given to him by a gracious God, but then he says, and I even did it for me. Not only do I feel great about my skills, not only do I feel wonderful about who I am, but I did it for, I didn't even do it for anybody else. I did it for me. Look what I did. And that's a great question for you to understand or, or to ask yourself is what, right now, where are you prideful? Maybe that's a homework for us. Before you can speak to anybody about anything related to basketball and March Madness, you have to first say, I would love to speak to you about that, but first can you answer this question? Where are you prideful? Can we have some real conversation? Before I even leave this whole issue of pride, I want to make sure we also understand this. Pride goes two different ways because we know that pride and insecurity, right? I say it all the time. Pride and insecurity are what? They're twin sisters. They're that closely related. And so some of you may be sitting there going, you don't understand. I'm not the guy who beats my chest and wants to dunk on everybody. I'm not the guy who's always going, look at me, look at how many homes I have, or look at how much money I've made, or look at how many instruments I can play, or look at how great I am because I have everything together, and I put on, like, there's different forms of pride. And you may be thinking to yourself, you're not the one who's all arrogant because you're going to keep it all internalized. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It goes two different ways. And here's here's the easy way to think about it, is you need to know the strong don't believe that the grace of God is needed. The weak don't believe it is sufficient. And some of you are living a life and you don't believe that the grace of God is sufficient, and so you live as a woe is me and as a victim, even though you're claiming the saving power of Jesus Christ in your life. And so as a result of that, you're not doing anything. It's both a matter of pride. It's just two sides of the coin. Different symptoms, same coin. And so he jumps into this passage. He says, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Can we stop saying the word I and my? Like already, like anybody... If you can't have a conversation, like here's King Nebuchadnezzar's problem. I don't think he would probably have a conversation without talking about himself. 
Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. Like in a moment's notice, like it was fast. You will be driven away from people. You will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate, like, ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. So here he is cut down and sealed, gathering the dew in a moment's notice. Very quickly, he moved from what? From pride to humiliation. I mean, what a shift in the story. He's walking around impressed by himself, and God says, okay. And I'm using the word humiliation on purpose. I think a lot of people would probably use the word, uh, he had to be humbled. This is beyond humbling to me. Like, even when we're humbled, we make ourselves feel good about being humbled. Well, God has really just humbled me and helped me. To, like, this is beyond that. And sometimes we need to be humiliated. And instead of being angry at God for humiliating us, we should be thankful to God because what he's doing is he's grounding us in his truth and not our own lies. See the difference? And so we have this shift in the story. And it's what a, what a journey to go from being this amazing king to being a beast. And it shows us all of a sudden here he is acting like an ox that eats grass, right? And it shows us what happens when we're full of pride, how beastly we are. We're willing to, you know, if we just want to get what we want and if we run over somebody else, instead of going, oh, man, I shouldn't have done that, we go, well, they should have gotten out of the way. Now, he has this for seven years. We don't, allow, we don't have a lot of the details about what was happening within the kingdom at this time, but then it continues on. And this is what it says in Daniel chapter 4, verse 34. It says, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, now, now pick up on this. It's right there in front of you. Pick up on that. I raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. You lose sanity when all you are is focused on self and full of pride. You'll run over people you should never run over. You'll take advantage of people and justify it because at least you're getting what you want because you're acting like a beast. That's what pride does to you. And so here's this guy who has been this prideful individual. He's been humiliated. And now in verse 34, what you have is this. I raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. And so then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Finally, finally, King Nebuchadnezzar, for the very first time, comes to a place after walking through these other stories of where instead of just 
proclaiming this eternal God as an idol, as a temporary king, he knew that he was the only true king. Finally, we got there. And his immediate response is praise and worship and exaltation. But when I look at Daniel chapter 4, here's what I see about pride. Let me tell you what the opposite of pride is. When you look at Daniel 4, the opposite of pride is man's desire to praise God. Because it's about that childlike dependence. You're either going to have a childlike dependence upon God or you're going to have a Godlike dependence upon self. And when you truly have a Godlike dependence upon God, you recognize how much you need him. Like, I have no qualms about it. I don't think that God is an add-on in my life and that I can do everything myself. And whenever I, I need him to jump in when he's willing to. Let me tell you now, that is not my view of God. Here's my view of God, is I am a broken sinner. Without him, I am nothing. But he has restored me for eternity. Praise be to him. If you have small worship, you have a small view of God. If you have great worship, you have a great view of God. And so here's Nebuchadnezzar, who all of a sudden, who's been humiliated, and he jumps in, and his eyes are restored. His sanity is regained, and all of a sudden, he looks at it, and he goes, wow, there is one God. I will worship him. So for the first time in Daniel, we find an even if to me. And even if, we, we talked about these even ifs, even if I suffer, even if I go hungry, I will be faithful to God. And we find these from Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But finally, we find this even if, I think, from King Nebuchadnezzar. Because he's letting them know, even if I am humiliated, I will turn back to God in praise. What a powerful lesson for us. What a powerful encouragement to us to have this king who's so humiliated, and yet now he's turning back to praise. He's turning back to God, the one true God. He tells us in verse 36 and 37, he says, At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and my splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, listen to this, here he is, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven. For one of the very first times, if not, I believe it's actually the first time, if I'm going back through the first four chapters, instead of going, wow, do I praise and worship the God of Daniel, he says, I praise and I worship and I exalt the king of heaven. It's no longer Daniel's God. Finally, it's his God. So I love Tyler Waterway's story of transformation because he mentioned something in that and he says, I recognized what? That I had secondhand faith. And finally, King Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar came to the picture and finally, for the first time, he goes, Now I know what it is to have firsthand faith. 
Do you have firsthand faith? It's a big question. Your family cannot give you faith. They can help teach you. They can help raise you up. But you have to make a personal choice on whether or not you will receive Jesus Christ as Lord and truly recognize him as the ultimate king. You have a choice to make. It's, it's called priesthood of the believer. It's called soul competency. It's all different names that you can call it if you want to. Here it is. is you have to make a choice on whether or not you're serving someone else's God or if he is actually your God. Do you have firsthand faith? So here he is. Seven years later, he gains his sanity. And wow, it's the story. if you read through it, it's the story of Job. In terms of, um, obviously, um, here's the story of Job. If you're not familiar with it, go back, read it. It's like 42 chapters. Do it this afternoon real quick. He goes through all this suffering and all this pain and all this hardship, right? But did God restore Job? Yeah. And now here he is jumping into the picture again, and he's restoring Nebuchadnezzar. Two totally different guys. Job had always been faithful, and yet God restores him, even though he had taken everything from him. Two totally different stories in many ways. But what I love about it is that the dichotomy of it, because here's this wonderful, righteous man in God who God restored and redeemed, and yet here's this guy who is so full of himself, and God still says, but don't you know, he's still my child. I will restore him. Amen. How beautiful is that, guys? Here's one of the things that I think that Nebuchadnezzar knew. I think because his eyes were open to the ultimate one true king, because his vision was restored, King Nebuchadnezzar recognized that the praise that would jump out of his mouth, that, that the praise that would jump off the pages of his life demonstrates and shows other people where you find greatest fulfillment. And so his first response was to praise his God, was to exalt his God. One of the reasons some of us struggle with praise is because we're not worshiping our God. We're worshiping our mom's God. We're worshiping our parents' God. We're worshiping our friends' God. And we're not actually worshiping our God because we don't recognize our dependency, our need for him. But King Nebuchadnezzar finally came around, and after being humiliated, he went from pride to humiliation to praise of the Almighty. And some of us need to be humbled and recognize that God wants to restore your life. That is great news. It doesn't matter if you've lived as a Job. It doesn't matter if you've lived as a Nebuchadnezzar. He says, you are my child. And God restored the king. You best believe I'll get some energy going about this. And God can, and he hungers to restore you. 
Isn't that good news? God, I come before you in the name of Jesus Christ. And I give you thanks. That it doesn't matter where we are currently sitting in our life right now. We can be just arrogant and prideful and full of self. Or we can be a a godly, devoted, faithful individual just as Job was. But regardless, you restore them both. Because we are your children and you just want us to run to you. And to recognize that you are where we find dependence. You are where we find strength. You are where we find forgiveness. You are where we find mercy. You are where we find hope. God, we are allowing the temporary to determine so much of our life. And I say from this day forward, we allow the eternal to dictate, to determine how we see the temporary. And some of these friends in this place right now, they may not believe that you're capable of restoring their life. God, let them believe. Let them recognize that you can restore their life. Let them live with that hope. Let them recognize that when it comes to the Almighty God, their story always ends in hope. And may we chase you, O Lord. Amen. The story started with pride, and then it moved to what? Humiliation. And then it went to what? Praise. So once again, it went from pride to humiliation to Will you praise your God for his, he is eternal? Will you praise your God, or are you praising someone else's? Will you praise your God because he has restored your soul? Let's stand and worship him and praise him together.